Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Rachel. And welcome to the Tim's Take, episode 56. I wonder if the listeners can tell throughout this episode that we are coming off a date night. I feel refreshed and connected to you in a way I don't often feel (laughs) when we start these podcasts. I feel like it's hard for our listeners to imagine us having any greater chemistry than we (laughs) usually have. You think? Yeah, definitely. Write in. That's the only that's the only way we can settle this. Write in Timstake at gmail.com. Let us know if this episode feels particularly in sync. It was I just feel so like on top of the world right now. Oh wow. <laughs> okay. I just mean okay, so we had this thing called Parents Night Out at our church in which you can drop your kids off and the parents can go out. And it started at 5.30, and we picked Oliver up at, like, 6.40. So it really wasn't even that long. But just, like, the witching hours are a real thing. And the time, like, dinner times are always just rough and exhausting and you're spent. And so for someone to take Oliver during that time, (laughs) and then we just came home and put him to bed, and he was, like, happy because he missed us, and we were happy because we missed him, it was, like, magical, like... I mean, do we hire someone to take him for an hour every night? <laughs> it might be game-changing. And very costly. That's immediately where my mind goes. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Parents' night out is only $5 and only happens once a month. But I'm just saying, like, that hour, I don't – It's it was a small amount of time, and yet it changed how I have experienced this evening. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. It is his worst hours of the day, without a doubt. Anytime around meals, except for breakfast. But, yes. So I guess I mean at lunch or dinner. <laughs> While those, <laughs> those are getting ready, meals. just brutal. He just is the epitome of what I have heard stories of toddlers about. Mm. We were coming back from the grocery store yesterday. Yeah. And we're getting him in the car and he is not pleased and making that very well known. He's kind of screaming. He's got big tears just, like, running down his face. (laughs) And sometimes, like, once you get him in the car seat, he'll stop. But we're pulling away from the grocery store. We're probably, like, five or seven minutes into our 10-minute trip home. And he's still crying and screaming. And we're trying to, like, talk to him and, you know, soothe him, tell him what we're going to do when we get home. And he is just very persistent. Bargain with snacks at the end of the drive, whatever it's taking. And nothing's working. And so, finally, I just say, Oliver... Because he's kind of pointing, like, toward us. And I was like, do you want to sit in the front seat? Because he has this obsession recently of, like, driving the car, pretending to drive the car. Yeah. And he just goes, yeah. And he stops crying. And the tears stop flowing. And that was it. And he's still in his car seat in the back seat. (laughs) Facing backwards. But just because, and we, you and I are just, I mean, we're like crying. We're trying not to laugh because, like, we were laughing. There was no trying not to laugh. We were just straight up <laughs> laughing. I have like tears rolling down my face now from laughing because it was just so funny. Like, he legitimately just like was so upset because he felt like no one understood him. And as soon as I said, "Is this what you want?" and he said, "Yeah," then he felt better. And that was that. And then we had a quiet, pleasant drive home for the last three, three minutes. <laughs> Yes, it was it was very, very funny. Oh, I just like that is what I imagined. Like those are all like the toddler memes and tweets, right? Of like this is what it's like to have a toddler. We're in it. 
they don't even want what they want. They just want you to know what they want <laughs> until the day that they do want what they want. Oh, man, it's a it's a wild ride. It is. And funny sometimes. We do really laugh a lot, whether at just like our circumstances, whether in like the suffering of it or the actual like enjoyment of it. I am surprised at how much we laugh having a kid. I feel like we're pretty easy laughers. <laughs> I know, but that was something even when I was on my girl's trip. Not that I had a great time, but it was like you were without this like easy source of entertainment. You know, who's like, I mean, he. I sure it was Oliver. Maybe it was me. <laughs> That's maybe true. Maybe you're just missing me. But Oliver is like a person who is like seeking that attention, right? And so it's just this easy. Oh, I see no difference between us. <laughs> All right, shall we just move on to our conversation? Yes, we're diverging a bit. I'm very proud because I think I brought a good resource this time. That's a, that was a great resource. Thank you. So for this episode, I chose a short, about four-page mini essay, kind of, maybe as a way to think about it, from this book that I recently finished, 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. He starts by talking about his own journey into parenting. And to summarize the, the essence of this book, it is a productivity geek who embraces an entirely different philosophy, not of getting everything done, but instead of embracing his limits. And so then he writes kind of a short essay on what it was like for him to become a parent and some of the advice he read. And he starts by making this distinction between baby trainers and natural parents. He says, on the one side were the gurus I came to think of as the baby trainers, who urged us to get our infant onto a strict schedule as soon as possible. Because the absence of such structure would leave him existentially insecure and also because making his days more predictable would mean he could be seamlessly integrated into the rhythms of the household. This would allow everyone to get some sleep and my wife and me to swiftly return to work. On the other side were the natural parents for whom all such schedules and frankly the very notion of mothers having jobs to return to were further evidence that modernity had corrupted the purity of parenthood which could be recovered only by emulating the earthy practices of indigenous tribes in the developing world and or prehistoric humans, these two groups being, to this camp of parenting experts, for all practical purposes, the same. You get there a little bit of his kind of dry sense of humor, but the first question as I was reading this is just, are we baby trainers or are we natural parents? What do you think? I mean, I feel like the scales tip like 84. 5% toward baby trainers, which everyone is shocked by who listens to this podcast, <laughs> and 15% natural parents. What would you say? What are we like natural parents on? I think we have, we enjoy schedules, so often we stick to it. We are willing to make exceptions to that schedule. I see. It's not that we're really natural parents. Is that occasionally we are willing to be not baby trainers. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which then puts us in the other camp. Yeah, that's what, that's the 15%. Okay, I can see that. Well, of course, the irony is that his whole point in this essay is essentially like both of these camps are doing the same thing. And he, he likens this to what Adam Gopnik, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker, calls the causal catastrophe which he defines as the belief, quote, that the proof of the rightness or wrongness of some way of bringing up children is the kind of adults it produces. Basically, the premise of this kind of short essay is that we did not treat childhood as an intrinsic 
good in itself, but instead as a means to the end of some kind of adulthood. And he he's not going overboard here. At one point, he says, obviously, it matters to keep half an eye on the future. There would be vaccinations to be administered, preschools to apply to, and so forth. But my son was here now, and he would be zero years old for only one year, and I came to realize that I didn't want to squander these days of his actual existence by focusing solely on how best to use them for the sake of his future one. Mm. I found it really provocative, and I'm curious kind of what you what you think. Yeah, I read that quote about the rightness and wrongness of kind of how we think about how we're shaping them toward the future. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's almost how every parenting advice, media, meme, whatever is framed. Like that messaging felt very familiar to me. Like, I mean, we take sleep training, for example, like a big reason we say we have made that a big priority is not only for like the current moment, which I think is true. Like we legitimately want him to sleep well now and we're enjoying when he sleeps now but a big part of what we've said is like when he's seven like we have decided for our family like we want him to be as much of an independent sleeper as possible and so like part of our sleep training now is like to work toward that goal so i do think there are a lot of things that we future orient it's a huge temptation and i think a lot of like child rearing education is focused on that yeah a lot of it is that like if you do this and these are the things you talk about and these are the things you model like they're kind of promising like this outcome as an older child or as an adult and i think it's tempting to then view it as a formula yeah i think like it's sort of like the flip side of this is very easy to see for example you look at another parent who's made decisions and you're like I admire the way you parented. I admire the way you like love your child. And then they're 25 and they've just gone off the deep end. Like we look at that parent and if that parent gave sort of a secure, loving home, we would say this has nothing to do with you. Like you don't need to judge your parenting based on what happened to your kid. And yet as parents, when we're in it, it strikes me, we're always like, oh man, like the decisions I make now, I'm going to judge those based on kind of what happens down the line strikes me that what you say about sleep training is maybe a little bit different because in that case actually we're judging it by what like what we have decided would be healthy and good for our family you know what i mean like it is future oriented but it is a different future orientation than just how oliver is in the future renders judgment or like reflects on the parenting decision we make so i think even that is like healthier because you have to unless you don't believe that parenting has any formative influence on your kid, you have to have some kind of causal relationship. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting distinction. And I think is why I say, like, we really thrive in that 85% of baby trainers, but I think it's really healthy, and I think we can continue to ask the questions and push ourselves toward kind of that more spontaneous, natural you know, side where it's like, okay, normally we have a schedule, but you know, when he's three and a half years old and there's a Spurs game in Sacramento at 7 p.m., like 
are we willing to suffer the consequences of breaking his bedtime for like an experience? Like, I hope so, you know, and that doesn't make sense every weekend for us and for Oliver, but I hope like we're willing to like, we have other values beyond like, like a schedule, you know, that's not the highest value for our family all the time that we're willing to like kind of bend things for. Yeah. I was thinking of an example, another sleep, example he he gives a couple of examples here where he says i wanted to watch his minuscule fist close around my finger and his wobbly head turn in response to a noise without obsessing over whether this showed he was meeting his quote developmental milestones or not or what i ought to be doing to ensure that he did worse still it dawned on me that my fixation on using time well meant using my son himself a whole other human being as a tool for assuaging my own anxiety Treating him as nothing but a means to my hypothetical future sense of security and peace of mind. Mm. I thought, yeah, it's a bit of a subtle thing. Kind of, a, it can be a knife's edge, right? Of when, like, oh, this is healthy for you, and then also this becomes about me. I thought about recently. There was like a nap that he had, and you know, sleep battles is a little bit extreme. But we kind of had to rework some sleep stuff with him, and you like held him for like a couple of hours as he slept on you. And I had the same thing happen while you were gone. And I just remember when you're doing that Mm -hmm. thinking, are we just messing up his sleep right now? Is this just like, oh my goodness, Rachel, you did that for like two hours. Now he's going to expect that all the time. And I think behind that was both like wanting my own future peace, (laughs) thinking like, okay, great. Now like we're cashing in a lot of chips for this moment. And yet when I had that moment a few weeks later, I was like, yeah, it's just, it's worth it sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, like it's so precious when it does happen. And I think, yeah, I thought of that example too. Yeah, actually, that same like, one? Of like, yeah, what letting him sleep on me yeah. occasionally because I just really, like those moments are so precious and most of the time we are sacrificing that to have like a sleep trained baby. But I think there are moments where it's like, like, let him be an 18 month old who is willing to sleep on you like that won't last forever yeah and so like there are times where you just let it be is there anything you'd change after reading this little mini essay hmm that's a good question I think it does maybe remind me to like let him be a kid and not have like every way I interact with him like have to mean something about who I want him to be as an adult Mm -hmm. like I I don't think that's wrong as like a general like we want to like talk about emotions and talk about food and talk about relationships like in a way that prepares him for the kind of person we want him to be but I think embedding that pressure into every interaction I have with him is exhausting for everyone. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Just, yeah, saps energy from it, too. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I'm just thinking about that balance a little bit more. What about you? Hmm. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, this is all, the whole point. It's like it's inviting us, like, into presence. I mean, this is in the context of the whole chapter, which is essentially about kind of being present uh, to the current moment. I think one thing is like 
I, we've talked about this surely, but like I'm not the biggest outside person. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and ironically, like I, I believe in being outside for him. I think that's really valuable. But I think just being a little bit more willing, like when he wants to do something to be like, sure, let's do that. Yeah. That feels like it relates to all this for me. Rather than like, can we can we just have this day be nice for dad? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. There's times where I'm at the park and I'm like, Oliver, it's time to go home. And then I'm like, but what are we going to do when we get home? Like, we don't have an agenda. I'm just like, I want to go home. And so, like, let's go home. Rather than like, it's not going to kill me or really disrupt anything to have another 10 minutes at the park if he wants to be at the park. Right. Yeah, I hear that. A good resource, a thought-provoking one. A little challenging. Yeah, I don't think 100% right, but certainly Mm thought-provoking. That's good. Well, I think we don't even have time for something else. Oh, come on. We can do it quick. Okay, quick hits. A new segment called What's On After 7. In which we talk about what we're watching after Oliver goes down to sleep. And we have two big things that we're loving right now. One is F1. Formula One. Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive. It is just super well done. We don't watch Formula One racing as like a sport, but the documentary is just beyond fascinating. A whole different world. The emotions, like you get connected to these people, the storytelling they do is honestly just really powerful. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like petty and, you know, people who have lots of money complaining about wanting more money and power. Right. But I think they're doing some interesting things. And especially you get to season three, almost the last episode, second to last episode. Second to last episode. We are just crying and it was emotional. (laughs) Multiple times. Man on Fire is the name of the episode. Yeah. Highly recommend. I know it's a weird one, but we're loving it. Good recommendation. The second one, we just watched this last night. It's a documentary called The Rescue. It is about, in 2018, this group of 13, 12 boys and their coach, a soccer team getting trapped in these tunnels in Thailand. And unless you're living under a rock, which is a bad pun in this case, you heard about this story. And I'd heard about this story. Yeah, I had too. not heard the full story. That is for sure. And I don't want to. I can't even spoil any of it. It's, but... we- it's weird to think about like not wanting to spoil a real life event. But there were parts of this that just blew my mind in watching this documentary. It's like. The bravery of people, the willingness to like the decisions these people had to make, like the weightiness. I just, man, it was it was really wild. Yeah. Just like a real kind of heroism from these people who are involved in the rescue. It was, it's just a really powerful. Yeah. So the rescue, it's on Disney plus here in the States. Formula one drive to survive is on Netflix here in the States, but that's on after seven for us right now. Yep. Cool. Well, I think that does it for this episode. Well, it's great. It was fun. And now we still have an evening together after a date night. Wow. What a day. What a day. Till next time. I'm Matt. I'm Rachel. And that is your Tim's Day.